to the Books and Bites podcast. Each month we bring you book recommendations and discuss the bites and beverages to pair with them. I'm Carrie Green and I'm here with my co-host Melissa Colston. Hello. So today we're talking about the library book by Susan Orlean, which you can also discuss at this month's meeting of the JCPL book club, which Melissa leads. You want to tell us a little more about that? Sure. So the last Monday of every month, barring any federal holidays that the library is closed, the more traditional book club that JCPL has meets, and I am the one that runs it. So this month, sort of in honor of National Library Book Week, which is the same week we're recording this, um, I wanted to pick the library book, which came out last fall, I believe, Mm -hmm. um, and is about the devastating fire that happened at the Los Angeles Central Library in 1986. Mm -hmm. And so we're reading that for the book club, and then Carrie was interested in reading it too, so we thought we'd do it for the podcast as well. Um, I really enjoyed it. What did you think of the book? Yeah, I I really enjoyed it too. Um, I am curious to hear what people who are non-librarians think of, think of it as well. Um, yeah, a lot of it is like sort of stuff that we already know about libraries. Right. Yeah, yeah. that was, that was my, initially I was like, this is, I'm a little bored because <laughs> I have a master's degree in library science, you know, this is, mm-hmm. this is nothing new to me. But, but then she sort of got into some other things that were, really interesting and and the book although the fire is the central focus it also talks about a lot of other things like the history of the Los Angeles Public Library and um, kind of profiles one of the main suspects in the fire Um, and there's a lot of just general background about libraries Um, so I think probably most people are not going to feel that way about. <laughs> I would expect that it would be more informative for people that don't have degrees in library science, but it is, that's part of what I enjoyed about it was that it wasn't just about like how to catalog an image or how processing a book happens or fire mitigation in libraries. It, it The way that she tells the story, it goes far beyond just that central um, reason for investigating this this old fire case and and sort of going back through the history of it she really takes it beyond just that reason for writing the book which Mm -hmm. it really it goes pretty far pretty wide-ranging from Mm -hmm. history to current stuff and um i really appreciated the way that she did that i haven't read any of her other books have you um yes i have read the orchid thief it has been a really long time since I read it, but I also really enjoyed that book. And um, for me, the world of orchids and orchid training was a much newer topic. So I think I felt, um, you know, more immediately engaged because it was something totally new to me. So so I think probably other readers would, will feel that way initially with this book. But I mean, there was also lots of things I didn't know that I found interesting, like the history and especially the early women directors. Yeah, I really loved the way that she talked about the the administration of specifically the Los Angeles Library and how 
its place in the community sort of changed over time from when it was first founded, when it was a smaller city, mm -hmm. not nearly what it is today. Yeah, that, especially about the women that led it, which was unique at the time and still today. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, and she, she mentioned another fact that I didn't really know that one of the reasons, because we, you know, we always think of women as being librarians, mm -hmm. I mean, as the library being a feminine field, that there were so many libraries opening suddenly because of Andrew Carnegie's gift, that there was no one to fill the job other than women. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so we kind of got that job by default. And, um, you know, as with Mary, I think it was Mary Jones, who was one of the early women library directors at the LA Public Library, she got fired because somebody on the board wanted their friend, who was a man, and not <laughs> to particularly qualified. Yeah, not not qualified at all. And she had been doing a good job, and um, everyone had been satisfied with her performance. And then suddenly, the patriarchy just swoops right in. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then one of the other. Um, librarians, um, even before her, Mary Jones, Tessa Kelso, I really enjoyed hearing about all of her ideas. Um, and she wanted to add um, sporting equipment and board games to the collection. And that was such a visionary thing. Yeah. She was back like in the 20s? Uh, no, even before that, 1889 was 1889. when she became director. So that was like, over a hundred years. I mean, we just started doing that here at the Jessamine County Public Library, so... Way ahead of her time. <laughs> Absolutely. She was great for that job, apparently. <laughs> yeah, it's a really... I, that was one of the aspects of the book that I really enjoyed. Um, I actually wasn't all that interested in, in the examination of the fire itself or of the, the main suspect. Mm -hmm. um, it was kind of interesting to hear like a breakdown of how how it happened and why it was so devastating um, and some of the relief efforts and things like that. But I'm just not that big a fan of true crime. So it's not, you know, something that I would be particularly interested in anyway. Well, and I just thought that it wasn't a particularly suspenseful story, you know, yeah, there wasn't that like kernel of thriller or what or what have you. I don't know. Yeah, I was. I, a I little, know what you mean, though. I was a little disappointed in the crime aspect as well, just because I didn't. It didn't really feel like it had. I mean, it didn't have a neat ending in real life, but it just didn't feel. You know, he kind of seemed like something like this was kind of above him anyway, you know? <laughs> and so it just... And it's not like there was some sort of vendetta that he had or anything like that that made it juicier. Right, right. He's just like, okay, I guess I'm going to set the library on fire today. <laughs> like, it's not particularly compelling. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. Um, although I did find some of, the, some of the facts about fire and arson in general to be really interesting. Yeah, I really enjoyed especially learning like the different aspects of why, again, why that fire was so devastating, but also um, like how they fought it mm -hmm. and the different reports from firefighters and the fire chief and like learning how that side of not just 
how do you deal with a fire, but how do you deal with a fire at a library? So this was a pretty challenging book to think of recipes to go with it, I thought, especially since libraries, well, they generally permit many things. <laughs> food inside of the library is not necessarily one of them, although we have lots of food in our programs, but those are those are tend to be in the meeting rooms. Yeah, we want to try and keep food away from the book <laughs> because yeah. with food comes pests and we don't want those. No. I have a couple of recipes and I thought that it should have the recipes should involve flames. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that you can safely unleash your inner arsonist well away from the books. So the first one is a 1980s grapefruit brulee. Ooh, that sounds interesting. So it is, uh, yeah, so both of them have to do with citrus because um, it's Los Angeles. And I actually found this recipe on a blog about Jewish Viennese cuisine. <laughs> but, you know, like it's from Vienna? From Vienna, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but to me, it sounds very LA. So um, it's pretty simple. You just have a grapefruit. And if you feel like it, you can pour a little vodka or champagne on the top. And why wouldn't you feel like it? Um, and then sprinkle it with sugar, and you can either use a blowtorch, as you would might with a creme brulee, um, to caramelize the top, or you can stick it under a broiler, which is going to heat the whole grapefruit, so it might not have the same effect. Um, I would I would go for a blowtorch if yeah, you I don't. One. <laughs> I don't really want a hot grapefruit. Yeah. But I can see, you know, if you don't have a blowtorch, that's an option. <laughs> right. So the other um, one is a drink, and it's called The Flame of Love, and oh boy. <laughs> it was created in Beverly Hills by a bartender for Dean Martin in 1970, and it also just has a few ingredients, um, vodka, fino sherry, and orange peels. So you rinse a chilled glass with sherry and discard the rest. And then you hold a strip of orange peel over the glass and use a match to flame the oils into the glass. And Have you ever done that before? No. Have it's you? super fun. It, well, it sounds super <laughs> fun. I did not have any orange peel, so I didn't try it, but... You should. Next time you have some oranges on hand that have... Um, they have to have, like, a decent amount of thickness to the rind, <laughs> or else it just kind of doesn't work because you have to be able to squeeze the rind yes onto the flame because you're squeezing out the oils onto the flame and that's what lights up but it does make a huge difference and once you start doing that you'll never go back oh really well I mean you will but you'll be like oh I just don't feel like it <laughs> but it's so good especially on like a like a Manhattan or a, like mm -hmm. Manhattan variations that have any sort of citrus aspect to them yeah, they're great. So what, what else is in the Flame of Love? How else do you do that? Um, so you just repeat that a few times um, and then pour in the chilled vodka and then um, you flame a final orange peel over the finished drink and that's it. 
Wow, that sounds very interesting. It does. I haven't actually tried it yet, but um, it is on my list. Yeah, that sounds great. You'll have to report back. <laughs> so now we're going to look at some books to read after the library book, if it's one that you've enjoyed. And my first book is Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI by David Graham. This book details his investigation into the murders of several members of the Osage Nation in 1920s in Oklahoma. After the Civil War and efforts to relocate different tribes further inland, the Osage were one of the few tribes to purchase the land for their reservation, which allowed the tribe to retain the mineral rights under the surface of the land. Once oil was discovered, the tribe was entitled to the proceeds from its sale, and in short order, dozens of Osage were murdered. It's a complicated story of how the United States government systematically worked to deprive the tribal members of their rights and income through both legal and corrupt means. The book also takes a look at how the investigations of these murders led to how J. Edgar Hoover got his start with the FBI, as well as Grant's own investment in the history that he's laid out through the course of the book. The audio is narrated by three narrators, one for each section of the book, and I enjoyed the listen. Grant does a great job of unraveling the complicated relationships and oppressive history of how the United States government has treated Native Americans. I would recommend this book if you enjoy true crime or enjoyed the true crime, particularly in the library book, as well as the historical investigations that Orlean does in that book. It has a very similar feel. If you want to pair this book with something to eat, I would recommend checking out the Fresh Summer Salad with an Indigenous Twist, recipe courtesy of Tokabe, which is a restaurant in Denver that is owned by two members of the Osage Nation. The recipe is highly customizable and looks perfect as the weather warms up around the country. We'll link to the restaurant's website and the recipe on our blog. My first book is Palaces for the People, How Social Infrastructure Can Help Fight Inequality, Polarization, and the Decline of Civic Life by Eric Kleinenberg. In Palaces for the People, sociologist Eric Kleinenberg argues that social infrastructure, which he defines as, quote, the physical places and organizations that shape the way people interact, unquote, is a critical component to forming a productive civic life, bridging divides, and promoting a healthy democracy. The title of the book comes from a phrase that Andrew Carnegie used to describe his ideal public libraries, and Kleinenberg believes that public libraries are, quote, among the most critical forms of social infrastructure that we have, unquote. In the book's first chapter, Kleinenberg visits several branches of the New York Public Library to show how they provide not only access to books and computers, but also innovative programming that allow patrons to connect to other people and their communities. Other chapters examine the ways in which schools and parks can facilitate healthier, happier communities, and how a strong social infrastructure can help us be more resilient in the age of climate change. Although Palaces for the People does not focus just on libraries, Kleinenberg returns to the subject several times. 
the book provides context and a sociological perspective for many of the observations that Orlean makes about libraries. It's also written in an engaging journalistic style, similar to Orlean's, and I appreciated the overall hopeful tone of the book. While Kleinenberg does point out weak social infrastructures, he focuses on what works, such as libraries. And um, I, I know you weren't able to go to the Kentucky Public Libraries Association concert conference recently, but um, Kleinenberg actually spoke at that, so that was really cool to see him in person. Oh, I bet. Was it a good talk? It was. Um, I mean, he was just as engaging in person as he was in the book and just seemed like he just kind of got up there and talked. Um, but you could tell he really liked being there in front of librarians and people who loved libraries as well. I can imagine. My next book is Dope Sick, Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company That Addicted America by Beth Macy, which sort of seems like the opposite vibe of a book as compared to the relatively feel-good library book about how great libraries are and the history of them. This book is very much not a feel-good book, um, but Despite the incredibly depressing and defeating realities presented in Dope Sick, it was just as compelling as the library book, and I'm so glad I read it. Beth Macy is a journalist from southwestern Virginia who's been covering the opioid crisis in that area for decades, and her experience of writing about the crisis as it developed helps to inform the book from the first page. Macy is able to telescope the narrative in on a few individuals and their struggles with addiction while placing their stories within a local, state, and national context that is largely due to the efforts of one drug company, Purdue Pharmaceuticals. In much the same way that David Gran is able to isolate and explore evidence that one person was behind many of the murders of the Osage, Macy lays out a detailed case explaining exactly how Purdue downplayed the addictive properties of the powerful pain reliever OxyContin while also targeting specific physicians who could overprescribe and flood rural areas with the drug. It's an absolutely crushing book to read, and I had to read a few lighter books afterwards to recover, but perhaps what makes the, most, the book so depressing is that it depicts the reality in America today and for the foreseeable future. Macy clearly explains that the fight against opioid addiction is one that we are not currently winning, and the prospects are not hopeful without changes made on many fronts. It's not an easy read, but it is absolutely critical at this point in America. My next book is actually a book that combines fiction and nonfiction, and it's called Public Library by Ali Smith. And I've talked about Allie Smith before on Books and Bites. She's one of my favorite contemporary fiction writers. Public Library was first published in the UK in 2015 at a time when funding was in jeopardy for many British libraries. Some were closed and others were turned into community libraries run by unpaid volunteers. In between her own fictional stories, Smith presents brief essays by other writers on what libraries have meant to them. 
It's as full of inspirational quotes about libraries as Orlean's book is. And that was something that I forgot to mention when we were talking about the library book, because there were just so many places where I wanted to underline the quotes because they were just so perfect about libraries. Yeah, I, I definitely found that to be true, even <laughs> though I listened to it. I kept feeling, <laughs> I should remember where that is. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, although Smith's stories aren't actually set in libraries, many of them focus on the power of language and ideas. The work and lives of writers D.H. Lawrence, Catherine Mansfield, Virginia Woolf, and the relatively unknown Scottish poet Olive Fraser all make appearances. Other stories convey some of the absurd problems we face in an increasingly online and impersonal society. One character, for example, battles with a credit card company over a fraudulent charge, while another has to challenge an obituary that has erroneously declared him dead. The voice in all of these stories is conversational, witty, and stream of conscience, characteristics that are particularly apparent in the audiobook, which the author reads in her lovely Scottish accent. I could read a phone book read by Ali Smith. <laughs> she just has the most wonderful voice. So I have read the book in print and listened to it, and I recommend both versions. I was browsing for nonfiction audiobooks on Hoopla one day when I came across 90% of everything. Inside Shipping, The Invisible Industry That Puts Clothes on Your Back, Gas in Your Car, and Food on Your Plate by Rose George. And I found myself saying, well, yes, I would like to listen to nine hours of book about the international shipping industry. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah. Much like the library book, I had no idea I would be so fascinated by some random thing out in the world. But I, I certainly was. Uh, that's part of what I love about nonfiction audiobooks, especially. Uh, topics that would normally put me to sleep in record time when reading in print are incredibly fascinating to me in audio. Granted, that isn't the case for every nonfiction book out there, but it is for this particular title. Partly because George sailed from Rotterdam to Singapore on one of the massive ships that make up Maersk's fleet. Her examination of the industry is informed by her experience on the ship and with its crew, and with all the various discomforts, dangers, and complications that come along with living on a giant ship for several months. Along the way, much like Susan Orlean, she discusses different aspects of the shipping industry from piracy and whales to economics and linguistics. The narrator for the audiobook reminded me quite a bit of the narrator for Consider the Fork by B. Wilson, which is definitely a good thing. Her narration fit perfectly with George's thoughtful prose. Although they may be surrounded by an ocean of edible fish, food on board the ship is not exactly an inspiring discussion. Like many industries that were hit hard by the recession in 2008, the company who owns the ship George, Sh George sailed on, and shipping in general, have cut back on the so-called amenities for their crews. So perhaps make yourself a lobster roll to harken back to the better times, or a bowl of processed no-frills no ramen if you want to eat like the modern-day crew. Check out the River Cottage Fish Book, which is both encyclopedia and cookbook for all you need to know about buying and cooking sustainable fish and shellfish.
It's been many years since I read my next pick, so I'm a bit hazy on the specifics. Um, it's called The Professor and the Madman, A Tale of Murder, Insanity, and the Making of the Oxford English Dictionary by Simon Winchester. However, I remember really liking it, and I think it's a mixture of history, biography, crime, and of course a focus on books and words make it a good re-like for the library book. The Professor and the Madman tells the story of the creation of the Oxford English Dictionary, which was an enormous undertaking. Work began in 1857, and it took 70 years to complete. Dr. William Chester Minor, an American surgeon and Civil War veteran who later lived in the small English village of Crowthorne, was one of the many contributors to the dictionary. By the late 1890s, Minor's contributions were so numerous that the dictionary's editor, Professor James Murray, wanted to meet him in person. Murray visited the Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum, assuming that Minor was a doctor there. In fact, he was a patient locked up for murder. And my last book is called The Card Catalog, Books, Cards, and Literary Treasures by the Library of Congress. And this book is really more of a coffee table book than a book you'd sit down to read. It, it would make a great gift for the bibliophiles in your life. As the title suggests, it's about one very important aspect of the library, the card catalog. The text traces the history of the card catalog, which may only interest serious book nerds like me and Melissa, but the images are the real stars of this book. They include original catalog cards, early edition book covers, and photographs from the Library of Congress's archives. The book is printed on matte, heavy stock paper that is satisfyingly tactile. If you miss rummaging through drawers of physical card catalogs, this is the next best thing. Thanks for listening to the Books and Bites podcast. We record in the recording studio at the Jasmine County Public Library. You can find out more about the library and our recording studio on our website at justpublib.org. Our theme song is The Breakers by Scott Whitten from his album In Close Quarters with the Enemy. You can find out more about Scott and his music on his website at doorforadesk.com. <laughs>